I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. That's Club Nouveau. And they uh, are going to join us in case you uh, did not hear in our first or second hours. We started today's program by announcing some of the lineup for our Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass event here in Historic Lamert Park on Saturday, December the 10th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. We'll be joined uh, that day by the Mayor-Elect, the history-making Mayor-Elect of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, the first woman, uh, and the second African-American. I had the honor of working for the first black man to lead this city, Tom Bradley, Karen Bass, only the second African-American, and the first woman in the history of this city uh, to be our chief executive. Uh, we're celebrating uh, Karen Bass uh, with this Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass event here in Lambert Park, Saturday, December 10th, once again, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. She will join us live on stage at 11 a.m. straight up, 11 a.m. straight up on Saturday, December the 10th. Uh, you can see Mayor-Elect Karen Bass on stage uh, for this free public event. Bunch of folk going to come out, and you should be one of them. Come out, bring your, fam- bring your family, bring your friends. There'll be food trucks. There'll be entertainment, including performances by Club Nouveau and Guapale and Brian McKnight. We announced all three of those names just this morning. Brian McKnight, Guapale, Club Nouveau. Going to be a great day here in Limerick Park, Saturday, uh, December 10, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Karen Bass on stage exactly at 11 for this Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass event. We are excited around here at KBLA Talk 1580 uh, to be uh, hosting this event, celebrating our new mayor, and look forward to having you join us uh, here <clears throat> in Lamert Park, specifically right in the intersection of Lamert and Vernon, uh, and for those around the country uh, who want to see and participate in this uh, great event, we'll be live streaming this as well. Uh, the station will on all of our platforms for you to see us celebrate this black woman who's made history in L.A. and not just being a woman and not just being black, uh, but the first person in this country who's run for high office who had to withstand a $100 million-plus assault against her uh, from a white male billionaire, but he couldn't pull it off. The people came uh, to the rescue, and so Karen Bass has been elected mayor of this city, and we will celebrate her here in Lamert Park on Saturday, December the 10th, with Brian McKnight, Guapale, Club Nouveau, and you. In this hour, it is hardly a secret that uh, mobility has always been limited, if not impossible, for black folk. Uh, Before the Civil War, masters confined their slaves to their property, while free black uh, people found themselves regularly stopped, questioned, and even kidnapped. Restrictions on movement before emancipation carried over in different forms into Reconstruction and beyond. For most of the 20th century, many white Americans felt, uh, how how might I put this, blithely comfortable, denying black countrymen the right to travel freely on trains and on buses. But then came the automobile, and it made it much more difficult to shackle folk uh, cruising along a highway at 45 miles per hour. I am pleased to have acclaimed historian Dr. Gretchen Soren on in this hour to talk about driving while black, African-American travel, and the road to civil rights. And if you've never considered what the automobile did for black freedom, we're going to consider it in this hour now that Dr. Soren joins us. How are you today? Good to have you on this program. I'm fine. Thank you very much for having me. It's my great delight to have you. Glad we got the hour to to sort of unpack this. Um, You heard me say a moment ago, of course, uh, sort of describing uh, what your text is all about. Um, But I think most of us, including yours truly, frankly, had never really considered um, the role that the automobile played, at least in some level of freedom, of movement, 
when it comes to uh, being black in America, uh, because, again, uh, we've been uh, constrained and confined in, in so many different kinds of scenarios. But the automobile sort of changed the game for us. Um, again, as I said, I never really thought about it in those terms. I am curious. Uh, I, I know you're obviously an historian, but what made you uh, so curious and uh, to consider this subject? Well, you know what really got me started was when a colleague of mine handed me the cover of a green book. And this was mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And I had never heard of the Green Book. And as a historian who had studied African-American history, I was really curious. I thought, what is this thing, the Negro Motorist Green Book? Mm-hmm. And I started doing research on the, on the Green Book, um, and, and it dawned on me as I looked through this, this little tiny guide that's really big enough just to fit in your glove compartment, mm-hmm. that the automobile, it was all about the automobile. It was about people going out on the road and traveling by automobile. Um, and so I, I started doing some digging, and I started talking to people. And I talked to two two generations. I talked to people who were my parents' generation. They were the people who were the drivers who were who were taking these car trips. And I talked to people who were my generation, who were the passengers in the fifties and sixties and seventies. And I wanted to kind of find out, well, you know, did you use the Green Book, and why did you use it? And what I discovered was there are all these books about the automobile and how important the automobile is in American life, how it changed American life. But nobody thought about what the automobile meant to African-Americans, how it was different for African-Americans. That if you were black, the automobile gave you incredible freedom because you didn't have to ride on the Jim Crow bus Mm -hmm. or the Jim Crow rail car. And so you could you could be the master of your of your own destiny. You could go where you wanted, when you wanted, and you didn't have to face the humiliation of people, you know, spitting at you or, or yelling racial epithets, or even you know sometimes you would you'd go to get on a bus and uh, you you'd pay your money in, in the front door and they'd make you go to the back door. And when you went to the back door of the bus, they'd pull away. Mm-hmm. So they just take your money. There were even bus drivers that shot at people. You know, there's a, a story about a, a black soldier and a white soldier during World War II who were sitting together on a bus, and the bus driver didn't like it. And he said, I'm sorry, but you can't sit like that. And they said, no, 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 we're friends. And he said, no, you can't sit like that, and pulled out a gun. You know, so there were all these instances where African Americans were not protected when they were on public conveyances. And also think of what that did to their children. You know, you get on a bus and you're told, go sit in the back. You, you, you're not worth sitting in where you want to. You have to sit in the back of the bus. The humiliation for children was was terrible for parents. You know, they, they were feel, feeling that their children were being completely demoralized and treated, you know, like they were nothing. Yeah. Um, and so you have your own car. You know, it's, it's, you've got this, this metal um, box around you that's protecting you from, from all that humiliation, mm-hmm. from all that danger. And you know, it was an it was an incredible, freeing opportunity for African Americans. Mm. We we take our automobiles um, for granted so much these days. Yeah. Um, we get in our cars and go where we want to go. And again, uh, I had never considered uh, the ways in which uh, the advent of the automobile really did allow for some freedom for those black folk who could afford the automobile. My mind, of course, goes to all the black folk in Detroit 
for years who were making cars they couldn't afford to buy, uh, making cars they couldn't afford to drive in. But it's a fascinating story to consider uh, what it means to be driving while black in this country, to consider African-American travel uh, and the road to civil rights. And so when we come forward with Dr. Gretchen Sorton, we'll talk more about that. We'll talk about the Green Book and a variety of other topics related to this notion of driving while black. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Boom, boom. KBLA Talk 1580 wishes you a Christmas season that is merry and bright. bright. Happy holidays. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate meets a scholarly match. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Delighted to have you along with us in this hour of our program today, where we are featuring a conversation with Dr. Gretchen Soren. She's the author of the text Driving While Black, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. Having this conversation now because the timing, to my mind, couldn't be more propitious. We are in the holiday season. You know what that means. Uh, every year around this time, Thanksgiving through Christmas, through New Year's, uh, more Americans hit the road than at any other time during the year. The holiday travel season uh, is in full flex uh, this uh, uh, time of the year. Uh, and so many of us are hitting the road to uh, take vacations, to visit family, of course, for the holidays. And so no better time to have a conversation about driving while black, it seems, then right about now. Uh, before that break, Dr. Soren referenced uh, the Green Book. I asked you what got her thinking uh, about uh, historians always amaze me because you, I'm always fascinated by you know, what, what was gestating, what got them on the path to considering why they want to study this particular issue or write this particular text. And so I asked her that question moments ago in case you've just tuned in. Her answer was the Green Book. Um, she once was... Uh, uh, given a copy or saw a copy of the Green Book, and most of us know what that is now. If you didn't know what the Green Book was a few years ago, when the movie came out, Green Book, starring Mahershala Ali, which won, of course, for him an Academy Award for his role in that film, many of us came to be exposed uh, to the Green Book, uh, given um, the success of the film and, again, the Oscar that uh, Mahershala took home that night for his fine uh, role playing Dr. Don Shirley. Uh, in that particular film. So her answer to how she got on this was the Green Book. I want to come back to that now, Dr. Soren, because I, I want to get you to sort of unpack um, how these black travel guides, and the Green Book was the biggest one, the most well-known one, it wasn't the only one, but how these black travel guides and these black-only businesses along the routes, along the ways, the highways and the byways, um, sort of sort of um, encouraged a new way for black folk to resist oppression, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely perfect. And, um, and you know, it's, it's so interesting that we had uh, this, this whole world of African-American businesses frequented by African-American people all over the United States. And you were, there were tourist homes, guest houses, hotels. There were luxury hotels, um, restaurants, roadhouses, nightclubs, all black-owned all black businesses, you know, these were, it, in some ways, with the end of segregation, we lost that. Mm -hmm. You know, we lost those, those, all those black businesses, not because black people completely stopped going to them, but because white people never did go to them. Mm -hmm. And so we, we lost that. And I think we're, we're starting to get back to a sensitivity to, to black owned businesses and saying, you know, let's, Let's buy from black-owned businesses. But that's something we lost when the 
the when the green book and those because uh, the green book gave free marketing to mom and pop businesses all over the United States mm-hmm. that would never have had access to that kind of marketing. And you're absolutely right when you say that um, the, the green book was only one of dozens of these travel guides that listed um, businesses all over the United States that were welcoming to African Americans as they traveled. Yep. Um, you know as well as I do um, that even in uh, this moment, in 2022, uh, there are still consequences for driving while black. Um, those, quans- those, those consequences range from being profiled to being pulled over to being harassed to being arrested, uh, to being murdered, quite frankly. Um, It's a a broad range of what black folk have to endure, even in 2022, driving while black. We'll come to that in a second. But let me me start, though, by asking what it was like for black folk back then, the Green Book notwithstanding these welcoming and hospitable establishments owned by black people notwithstanding uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm recalling places now like the Dunbar Hotel, of course, here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of uh, the Teresa Hotel in New York, in Harlem. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Pasco's in Atlanta. Uh, yep. All places I've been in my career and stayed and just enjoyed good times in these, in these locales um, in my own lifetime. Um, but, I, but I'm wondering if you can tell us, give us a sense of what it was like for black people when they were able to afford an automobile and got on the road back then. We know the hell we still endure today, but even though they had they had the freedom to move around and they had their own vehicles, what were they met with when they got on the road? But it was still dangerous. Yes. I mean, you, it, it was a way, you're, you're absolutely right, it was a way of protest. Uh, you know, the black middle class was going out on the road and they were saying, we're going to do it even though it's dangerous and we're going to take our children. And I realized as I was working on the book, that this was my story, mm-hmm. because my parents were going from New Jersey back home to my mother's home in North Carolina every summer. And people never stopped if they didn't have to. You know, if you could just stop at one black-owned business and just keep on driving, you never, you wouldn't, you wouldn't stop because you were afraid. You didn't know where people would be welcoming and where you might get shot or where you might get injured or where your car might be turned over. So generally... If you didn't have a, a guide, or and there were lots of advertisements for for black-owned businesses in the back of newspapers and magazines um, as well, so it wasn't just the travel guides. Uh, you you wouldn't you wouldn't stop. You would keep driving, and you would carry everything you needed. You carried blankets and pillows in the car. Mm-hmm. You carried water, extra water in the car. You ca- in case you had to sleep in the car, you carried a cooler full of food. In case you had to be on the road and and in case you couldn't find a a place that was welcoming to eat, you would carry your food with you. And as my grandmother always said, you carry your pecan. Mm -hmm. You carry one of those big coffee cans Mm -hmm. and you can pee in it if you need to. Mm -hmm. That's your bathroom because African-Americans were generally not allowed to use the bathrooms at gas stations because that's where the bathrooms were, except for Esso which is now Exxon, mm-hmm. Esso had a, a policy of allowing African-Americans to use their bathrooms. And it was because the, the Rockefellers who owned Esso, um, later Exxon, were Baptists, religious Baptists, and they supported civil rights. Mm-hmm. And they allowed black people to use the bathrooms. That's why so many black people swore by Esso gas. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, it's amazing the things that build loyalty. <laughs> if you allow me to use the bathroom, I'll buy gas at your <laughs> gas station. That, that kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, I, I am mad at Esso or Exxon, and I am mad at black folk for, for loving on some Exxon because of the way that they were allowed back in the day uh, to, to use their, to use their facilities to, to relieve themselves. Um, mm-hmm. g- give me, give me some sense of, uh, again, we, I, I'm, I'm having this conversation now because again, we're in that season where everybody's on the road and we take yeah. these, we take driving so much for granted these days. We've got, we've got navigation systems and all kind of stuff that make driving easy and fun, um, for us these days, TVs in the back seat for kids to watch. I mean, all this stuff didn't exist, of course, all those years ago, but when it comes to affordability, so we had the freedom to drive while black. But what was the affordability issue like for black people who wanted uh, to be owners of vehicles? Well, one of the important things was, and this, this kind of ties the automobile to so many other aspects of black culture, African-Americans were often prohibited by redlining from buying houses, mm-hmm. right? And so if you can't buy a house, but you, you're starting to have more disposable income, because you've got a good job or you're, you're working in Detroit, you're working for the automobile manufacturers or whatever, um, you have extra disposable money, you're going to put that disposable money into a car mm-hmm. because that's the second largest purchase. So a lot of African-Americans who were prohibited from buying real estate, from buying homes because of the collusion between realtors and banks, they put that extra money into cars. And so, you know, people, white folks would make fun of black people for having a Cadillac or having a fancy car. Mm-hmm. Well, you could have a fancy car if you couldn't buy a house. Mm-hmm. Right, because you put that money into a car. So people didn't buy Cadillacs because, uh, you know, they wanted to to show off necessarily. They bought Cadillacs and big heavy cars like big Buicks because they thought they were safer, mm. because they were big and they were heavy and they were less likely to be turned over. And also, you know, if you were Mahalia Jackson or you or Sammy Davis Jr. or <clears throat> you were Aretha Franklin, you could afford a Cadillac. Because you made a lot of money, and there was no reason that you needed to apologize because you had a Cadillac. Mm. I'm glad you went there. <clears throat> You're a mind reader in, a, in addition to being a, a, an acclaimed historian because I was just about to make that <laughs> turn. Uh, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you because you, uh, I'm, I'm going to follow you on this road, pardon the pun, <laughs> as we drive while we're black uh, in this conversation on this black talk station. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to go there because we were talking earlier about the loyalty that black people had for years to Exxon, formerly Esso. Because back in the day when Negroes were able to get cars and drive, Esso was the only gas station that allowed black people to use their facilities, their restrooms. Yep. And there have been so many jokes over the years. And, you know, the only person that's, that's the person laughing the loudest is Cadillac because they made so much money from black folk then and even now. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about the loyalty that black people had then and again, even today, in some respects, to certain brands. Uh, and these brands have made a great deal of money off of black people. I'm talking now just about automobiles. I could do this for hours talking about other brands, but there are certain brands that black mm-hmm. people have been loyal to for decades. Where did the mm-hmm. thing with black folk and Cadillac start? Where did that come from? That's, you know, that's a, that's a really terrific question. I think it comes from, uh, I think people saw Cadillac as a luxury brand. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, a luxury brand, brand for white, just a luxury brand. You know, in the beginning, Cadillac was not interested in having black people drive Cadillacs. I'm sure. In fact, they tried, tried to prohibit black people from buying Cadillacs because they didn't want it, black people to be seen in their cars. So mm. they were not particularly welcoming 
to black people buying Cadillacs. But African-Americans saw the Cadillac and the Buick as a luxury brand and a safe brand, Mm -hmm. a brand that was heavy. And one of the things that was so interesting about about, um, automobiles was that the, the black newspapers did studies. And we know that more people bought Buicks than any other kind of car. Mm-hmm. For more black people bought Buicks. Mm-hmm. And they bought Buicks because they were seen both as a luxury brand, but also as one of the safer cars. Mm-hmm. And for black people, safety was paramount. Yeah. What, is the, what is the car that you can't turn over if you, get, if you encounter an, an angry mob? Right. What is the car that you can fit all your stuff in that has a really big trunk and you can fit the blankets and pillows, the cooler, the, the extra water, the extra fan belt, all your suitcases, all that stuff you needed to carry. What's got a big enough trunk? So for black people, they, the reasons for choosing a car were different isn't than that, for white people. Isn't that fascinating? I'm sitting here listening to you talk, and I, white people would never, back then or now, go out and buy a car for the same reason as black people. We had our own unique reasons. We wanted safety. We wanted security. We don't want the car, as you said, turned over if an angry mob uh, uh, comes our way. We need trunk space big enough for all the stuff we got to put in the car because we can't get out unless we get to an Exxon. We can't go nowhere. Um, We we may be sleeping in this car by the side of the road. So, I mean, all of these issues and and this list of of uh, of uh, of items that black people had to check off when they decided what kind of car they want to buy is just arresting for me because again nobody outside of us would ever think about um you know that list of, of rationale uh, for why we're going to purchase car x over car y but i take it uh, more uh, ahead in this conversation with dr gretchen soren the book is called driving while black African-American travel and the road to civil rights. We'll talk about that road to civil rights when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Looking for legitimate political discourse without the bear spray? Tune in and speak out. KBLA Talk 1580. Our guest is Dr. Gretchen Soren. I'm Tabby Smiley, and this is KBLA Talk 1580. In case you missed our uh, announcement earlier today, um, you want to be sure that you join us on Saturday, December the 10th. Uh, for our Welcome Home Mayor-Elect Karen Bass event here in historic Lamert Park. If you want to be a vendor, um, spaces are going fast, info at smileyaudiomedia.com. Hit us up, send us an email to info at smileyaudiomedia.com. We'll get you um, uh, all the details you need. Just uh, send us an email once again to info at smileyaudiomedia.com. All the info you, you need will come right back to you about um, uh, being a vendor uh, here in Lamert Park for our Welcome home, Mayor-elect Karen Bass event, Saturday, December 10th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And earlier in today's program, we announced some of the lineup of great artists who will be performing live on stage as we celebrate with Karen Bass, who will join us live on stage at 11 a.m. straight up. We don't do nothing on CP time. We're going to start right at 11 a.m. Uh, she'll hit the stage uh, 11 o'clock on Saturday, December 10th. Uh, but prior to her and after her, you're going to hear performances from Brian McKnight. Guapale and Club Nouveau. Those are the ones we announced today. A little something-something for everybody. It's going to be a grand celebration uh, here in the Mert Park uh, for our new mayor, Karen Bass, the first woman and only the second African-American to be the chief executive of this city. So come out and join KBLA Talk 1580, Saturday, December 10, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Karen Bass on stage at 11 a.m. for our uh, Karen Bass event. So look forward to seeing you 
uh, there. Uh, continuing now our conversation uh, in this holiday season of uh, travel uh, with Dr. Gretchen Soren. Her book is called Driving While Black, which many of us many of us will be doing, have already started doing since Thanksgiving. But over the holiday season, we're all on the road. So many of us will be driving while black. Uh, the book is called that. Uh, the subtitle, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. We'll get to that part in a second here. But uh, Dr. Soren, you'll appreciate this. Um, this is what you do when you write a great book like yours and uh, and give me the makings of a great conversation. I, I was checking our, our, our social media stuff and all kinds of commentary I've been reading during the break. And here in the studio, my producers come in, J.D. and I were talking about this conversation. And I think we're all feeling the same way that you really don't consider all of the things that black people have to process and endure uh, and navigate, pardon the pun, when they're figuring out how to make a particular purchase. And the part of our conversation that we were just having, you know, uh, about the ways in which we make decisions really apparently seems to have resonated with our listening audience um, reading one comment here. This is fascinating, Tab. It's the things our minds or our ancestors' minds have to grapple with is indeed arresting, particularly and especially from a protection and survival perspective. People, nobody really thinks mm-hmm. about those kinds of things when they're making purchases like we do, but I just wanted to underscore that that seems to have resonated with our audience. And African Americans lived in a world that was totally unknown to whites. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet the white world was known to African Americans because we worked in it. We mm-hmm. worked as maids. We worked as butlers. We worked as chauffeurs. We knew all about the white world, but the, the white world didn't know anything about what it meant to be black in this country yeah. and probably still don't. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I get that. I get that. Um, let me flip it completely here. Were there horror stories um, yes. about this period when black people were able to move freely because they had vehicles. Yes. And there's one story, um, and, and it, it actually takes place, it starts out in California. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a young boy, he's nine years old, and he's with his aunt and uncle in a car, and they're going to a funeral in Florida, I think, or Texas, mm-hmm. And they're but they're driving through Texas. And, and very early... The family makes a wrong turn, and they end up driving through Waco. And as they're going through Waco, they're they're driving very slowly because there's a whole crowd. They see this big crowd, and they wonder what's going on. So they're peering out the windows, and they realize there's a black man about to be burned, about to be set on fire. Mm. So we have a lynching in process, and this black family uh, sees it, and they uh, somebody yells out, there's a nut, There's some more of them. Get them. Let's get them. Let's get them. And everybody runs for their cars and trucks. Well, this guy, of course, has this big old car, and he's got to do a K-turn really fast with this big car mm-hmm. and turn around. And the family basically spent the night hiding uh, outside of town in a field with their car so that they wouldn't also be lynched. So there were there were dangers. There were real dangers when you went out on the road in your car. The, the upshot of the story is that the, the parent, the, his aunt and uncle, couldn't read. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't read the, the road signs. Mm-hmm. First thing they did when they got back home mm-hmm. was sign up to take reading lessons because that, if you couldn't read, that could be very dangerous. No, it could you be, had to be able to read those signs. No, it could be deadly. It could be deadly, not just dangerous, as you, as you mentioned, but deadly. Exactly. And you parallel that, which I want to do right now, you parallel that to the fact now that in all of our cars we have these navigation systems. And you don't have, you, you don't have to read anything. You just type something in, type in the address where you're headed, 
uh, and it takes you there. So, again, we take so many things for granted in the lives that we live these days that our ancestors uh, uh, could not take for granted. If they couldn't read, you know, you turn the wrong way and you end up about to be lynched or, or, or worse yet, dead. Uh, and we just punch buttons nowadays, and it tells us our car base. And not even just that. You ain't got to drive no more. You can put t t type in where you want to go and sit back and let the car drive you there. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's 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 a different world, as they say, from where we came from. Um, it's but, a but, totally different it's world. Totally different. But what, what do you make of the parallel between then and now? The obvious question. I'm sure you saw this coming. Um, what do you make of the parallel between um, the hell that they were enduring for risking driving while black then and the hell that we still endure today for driving while black. Well, I, I think there's a systemic problem here, and and I'm not going to say all police are bad because all police are not bad, but we are still dealing with a police presence that can be very dangerous. And there are 17,000 police departments, all independent in this country, and some of them are good and some of them are dangerous. And I think you you don't know. You do not know when you're driving across country what you're going to encounter. And we know that the NAACP has basically said, do not drive in Missouri. Mm -hmm. Don't go there. Don't drive there. Yeah. Don't vacation there. If you're black, it's not a safe place to be. And that that's terrifying that in this in 2022, the NAACP has to has to basically issue a travel advisory for black people. Yeah, I was just I was about I was just about to say. Um, that in addition, in addition to that fine point you just made, that even beyond Missouri, as you well know, there are certain parts of certain states and certain cities yeah. that today, even though you have the freedom to go there and you're driving a nice, fine vehicle, you don't want to be there after dark, <laughs> even today. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you don't, you don't want to be in South Boston after dark, uh, and I can name a bunch of other places you don't want to be black driving. Uh, after dark in this country, but to your point, for the NAACP to put out a travel advisory to Negroes, you might not want to get caught driving in Missouri. That's damning in 2022, Dr. Sarn. It's it's frightening. Um, and the, the problem is you don't necessarily know. You don't mm -hmm. know what places are going to have a, a little a small police department that might be dangerous. You don't know exactly where you might be more likely to be stopped. Um, and And, you know, this whole problem with police law enforcement, just because they see you, you know they're scared because they see a black face. Mm -hmm. They're they're scared of, of black people just because they see a black face, because there's no familiarity or they buy into the racism of the country. And there and there you are. Yep. I mean, what, how do you address that? We mentioned earlier that there were you know, we were talking earlier about black loyalty, and one of the reasons that black people for years loved Exxon, uh, formerly Esso, is because it was the only place you could stop on the road, and they'd allow you to use the, the restrooms to sort of relieve yourself. We talked about the loyalty that black people have to Cadillac and Buick, even to this very day, uh, because of uh, the cars that they sold us then and the way those cars gave us the kind of hedge of protection, if you will, that we needed as we traveled across the country. When we come forward, um, there are other loyalties that black people developed. And I want to talk about that, about these black businesses. And specifically, 
these hotels, uh, the Teresa Hotel in New York, uh, the Hampton House in Miami, the Dunbar here in Los Angeles, uh, these great restaurants, uh, Dookie Chase in uh, New Orleans mm-hmm. and Pasco's in Atlanta. And many of these places uh, I've had a chance to, again, spend time at in my own career, my own travel. But I want to talk about that side because that's a beautiful side for me, the ways in which black people um, supported these uh, institutions, these these businesses and the ways in which they were able to thrive and survive for years. Some of these places are still in business to this very day uh, because black people uh, uh, visited and frequented and put their money down in these locales. And that's a beautiful thing for me, black people supporting black people. We'll talk about that when we come forward with Dr. Gretchen Soren on KBLA Talk 15. Interrogating your assumptions and expanding your inventory of ideas. Let's get back to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Soren, talk to me about all these uh, fine uh, black uh, dining uh, facilities and these great hotels that uh, survived and thrived because as black folk had the freedom to drive while black uh, and hit the roads, um, many of these institutions are still around today. Absolutely, especially I think one of my favorites is Dookie Chase's yes. um, in New Orleans. It's mm-hmm. fa- fantastic, and President Obama went and uh, ate there. Um, there were across the country, primarily on the East Coast and the West Coast. Yep. Uh, I would say as far west as Chicago, there was a there was kind of a big area in after Chicago that didn't have very many places, and then of course the West Coast had quite a few. But there were were tourist homes, guest houses, uh, resorts, resort communities, um, uh, restaurants, hotels, and these were you know these were not dumps. So one thing the the argument I have with the movie, The Green Book, is that the places that they showed in The Green Book were, were pretty tacky yeah. places. Yeah. When we know that there were luxury hotels, we know that there were fa- fine dining restaurants, um, there were places that were just amazing representations of, of black history and culture, nightclubs. Um, but the, the Green Book also listed businesses like black-owned pharmacies, Black-owned soda fountains, black-owned, um, you know, dentists and doctors, beauty parlors and barbershops. So there were places that you could get services as well as something to eat or a place to stay. Yeah. Um, and there were there were the, the resorts. I think were particularly wonderful, but beaches because of course beaches we know were segregated. Yeah. So there were there were beaches um, on both coasts that were. <clears throat> reserved for black one is one is bruce's beach oh, in yeah. california that's right which i think they just gave that that was taken by eminent domain that is correct um, because <laughs> because people did not want black people to have that coastal area and i think it, it was just given back i think that last is year. correct that's correct no we are we are obviously this radio station is flagshipped here in southern california in los angeles and we know that story well we all know bruce's beach we've all been there and the story of of what happened to get that uh, land back to the family is a story well known here in the state of California and across the country. Now there are other lawyers. I was in conversation with one uh, set of lawyers the other day. There are other lawyers, black lawyers across the country now who are fighting for other African-Americans to get back stuff that was stolen from them. Um, And they are inspired Mm -hmm. by what happened with the Bruce's beach case here. Our own Reva Martin is now fighting uh, for black and brown families in Palm Springs to get back uh, to get restitution for their land, their property being burned down by the city of Palm Springs because they wanted this particular area. Never mind eminent domain. They came in with bulldozers and just leveled the place. 
oh. and burned houses down. And so Ariva Martin, one of our uh, hosts here uh, on this station, is a fine lawyer, a civil rights lawyer, and she uh, is on that case right now. Uh, on behalf of black and brown families in Palm Springs. So you're right. Um, uh, these stories are, are, are interesting and unique uh, to our experience in this place called America. And Bruce's Beach, a great example of places that were, you know, earmarked and identified uh, for African-Americans. And uh, some folks just didn't like that. Let me say right quick, since you mentioned Dookie Chase, um, one, I'm hungry just thinking about Dookie Chase. Um, <laughs> but I... <laughs> I have I have I've always loved I said this the other day in a speech. Um, if you gave me a chance to talk to and interview a young person versus an older person, ain't hating on young folk. I was once young myself, but I love talking to those who are chronologically gifted because the wisdom that they can impart is so rich and so beautiful. And so I would never go uh, uh, to New Orleans as long as she lived without going by Dookie Chase to see Miss Leah, Leah Chase, the owner mm-hmm, of that mm-hmm. fine establishment. And I would sit and talk to her for hours sometimes while she's you know, uh, popping peas and, 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 and literally until she died, she was in that restaurant, um, making sure that the food tasted the way she wanted to taste. I love the fact that I lived long enough and I should say that she lived long enough for me to become friends with Leah Chase at Dookie Chase. And in Atlanta for years, I would stay until they uh, got rid of it. I would stay at Pascal's for years for two reasons. One, three reasons. One, because Dr. King is my hero. And as you know, uh, Pascal's is the place for all the black civil rights leaders would meet yep. in Atlanta. When they had meetings, they'd go to Pasco's for their meetings and for lunch or dinner. So there's so much history in the restaurant in Pasco's Hotel. Secondly, and I stayed... I will, go, go, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. No, no, secondly, I stayed there. I was there. just going to say, you, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head yeah. because all of these places, many of these places... Were, were places that facilitated the civil rights. That's movement. right. That's right. I said I stayed there secondly because um, uh, because Mr. Pasco, one of the brothers, was still living, and I developed a friendship with him, so I always oh. wanted to go support him. Uh, these guys lived a long time. And thirdly, I stayed at Pasco. Here's the good reason: because Pasco's is the only place in the country where you could get greens and pork chops and fried chicken and chitlins and yams. On the room service menu. Why? It's a black-owned <laughs> restaurant. Dr. Gretchen Soren on KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where we turn red lights to green lights and keep it moving. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Let's unpack a bit more Dr. Gretchen Soren, author of the book Driving While Black, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. i got about three or four minutes left, uh, Dr. Soren. Let me come back to the point you put your finger on a moment ago, and that is this subtitle, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. Talk to me about the, pardon the pun, the intersection of civil rights and black folk having access to automobiles. Well, I, I would argue that the civil rights movement could not have happened when it did without the automobile, mm. and for two reasons. One is, if you think about the Montgomery bus boycott, the only way that you could boycott those buses was so people had to be able to get to work. And the way they got to work was that Dr. King purchased a fleet of cars, mm-hmm. and he used those cars to drive people to work so they could get to their so they could get to their places of employment. Those cars made it possible for them to bankrupt the Montgomery buses. <laughs> also, if you think about what happens. So when civil rights leaders would fly into southern cities, um, they'd be at the airport and they were stuck there. You could not get a cab because the cabs were segregated. So you had to get a black cab, but black cabs were prohibited from picking people up at the airport. So what did black people do? 
Well, they rented a car. This is car car rentals are just beginning to happen at this time period. And they were able to rent cars so they could get to their hotels or get to their churches, get wherever they needed to get for the civil rights movement. Without that, they'd be stuck at the airport because a white cab would not pick them up. Mm-hmm. So I, cars I, were essential. No, they were essential. But beyond essential, I'm, I'm just uh, tickled. Um, big smile on my face here for those who are watching me on the live stream. Um, I'm smiling because um, the ingenuity of black people never ceases to amaze me. The ingenuity of our people, Dr. Soren, I'm, when, when you and I know this story well, of course, I've written a book about Dr. King. But when you laid that out so beautifully, that King and those in Montgomery knew that to beat that bus system and to win the right for black folk to sit wherever they wanted on the bus, Rosa Parks and beyond, uh, they had to do something when these black folk couldn't ride the bus to work. And for them to pool their resources and to buy a fleet of cars to get folk to work for those months while they were boycotting that bus. That, I mean, that's just the best of black brilliance to me. It is. It, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I just love that story, uh, knowing what they did to, uh, to make sure they had the resources uh, available to get these black folk to work because they couldn't lose their jobs over the boycott, but they had to get to work. And just a brilliant idea. And, to your point about black people renting cars because they wouldn't let the black cabs pick up people at the airport. I mean, just the things that we have had to do. Um, you know, we are we are an amazing people. Uh, we are an amazing people. And I, this conversation has just underscored that for me. Never mind the challenges we face driving while black. We are an amazing people. The book is called Driving While Black, African-American Travel and the Road to Civil Rights. Its author is acclaimed historian Dr. Gretchen Soren, who I've enjoyed so much having on this program. Dr. Soren, thank you for your work and witness. Good to have you here. And thank you so much. And thank you for your radio program. It's terrific. I thank you for saying that. For those of you who are getting in your automobiles and driving while black during the holiday season, be safe, be careful, uh, and be aware. There are still, as we discussed in this hour, risk to driving while black that's our show for today thanks for tuning in to all three hours back here tomorrow morning well not really tomorrow's friday so it's the best of tavis smiley on kbla talk 1580 three great hours from this week that you might not have heard uh, don't miss the mashup tomorrow on the best of tavis smiley 9 a.m to 12 noon pacific time here on kbla talk 1580 time now for the kbla midday money chain up next the millionaires roundtable with lynn richardson followed by Naja's program ahead of crypto curve Old money, new money, it don't matter. We got you covered here on KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, keep the faith.